Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Starving Writers Guild Anime, Manga, and Comics Podcast. I'm your host, Christian. Welcome back to those of you who started with episode zero. We're now moving on. This is episode one of the podcast. Episode zero is technically episode one, but who really cares about numbers, except for the people who have to number things, which is me. But I don't care, and neither should you. Now, moving on. It is, wow, that first episode, the zero with episode, however you want to say it, that took a lot out of me. The first time around, it's like, I was second-guessing myself the whole time. It's like, oh, this is awful. I hate it. And then there was the other part, like, man, this was amazing. This was so much fun. Let's do this again. And here I am. I wanted to record this episode. I wanted to record it, like, right after episode zero, but it was so late in the night. Even for me as an insomniac, I just didn't have the time. Then my sister came into town earlier, so I didn't have time before work. So I'm right after work. I'm tired, but we're going to do this. We're going to get it done. I just took some Advil. My headache's dying as we speak. Placebo effect in effect. All right. So, welcome once again. But what's been up with me What's since we last spoke? Well, I promised at the beginning of the episodes I'd talk about look, some of the things that I'm going through right now. You know, what, what I'm watching, what I'm listening to, so stuff like that. So, most recently, uh, I did finish Squid Game, which was a very fun experience. Um, I just went on the bandwagon with everyone else. I'd say overall, uh, definitely worth everyone's time. I mean, it's so, so great just to see, you know, media from other countries, how they, you know, bring like the things that we should bring to light as well as in America with the disparity between, you know, who, who has the wages It's a really fun story. I love, love the characters, love the setting. I mean, from the first episode alone, I was blown away. Oh, uh, spoilers real quick. Three, two, one. I totally guessed who was behind everything. Uh, old man, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. I'm very bad at Korean names. And when we eventually get to our manhwa, you're going to go like, Christian, just stop. Just just abbreviate their names, please. Super proud of that. Uh, I was about two or three episodes in. I'm like, oh, is he behind it? Yep. Also correctly guessed that... Uh, the actual announcer guy uh, was the police officer's brother. Felt really good about that. Not to like sound smug. It's like, oh yeah, I'm so I'm so smart. It's like it just feels good when you guess things correctly, based on the evidence presented in front of you. That's how I felt you know, forever ago when I was going through the the Monogatari series, and I could correctly guess what Ogiyoshino was. It's like, oh, based on one line alone. And to some people, like uh, my friend John. Uh, who also works with us as a starving writers guild, it gets incredibly frustrating because Barbara is kind of similar to me in that, you know, 10 minutes in, she'll have properly guessed where things are going. And it infuriates him. It's like, well, uh, I could have figured that out too. It just takes him a little longer. So I just find it funny. So definitely Squid Game is worth your time. Now on to like what anime am I watching at the moment? I am watching uh, through the Ultra series. Now that's Ultraman for those of you who don't know. Now there's only trying to think i think there's two or three anime series for ultraman so i had just finished leo which is one of the the live action shows and the one right next after that was the ultraman which came out in 79 i believe so i'm about one two 18 episodes into that i mean it's just classic fun i'm just not really like gonna blow your mind or anything i love the kaiju designs i love the characters it's just good, dumb fun. 
All right, so we're done with that. So it's time to get into the podcast proper with our discussion going once again through alphabetical order. We're going to start with Black Clover. Yeah, chapter 309. That is Blink. So we start 309. After Yudo was discovered, had discovered in the last chapter, that not only does he possess one grimoire, but he possesses two. Now, there was a lot of debate about this within the community, and I really don't get why people are bothered by this too much. I mean, you have the people say, oh, it's just a power-up he doesn't deserve. And, you know, as someone who likes to bash Black Clover every now and then just for fun, you know, I will come to its defense on this part. Like, it was established. Like, look, with, uh, what was his name, Patri, the elf? Uh, what was it? Who does he have? I can't remember. The, the elf that he has inside of himself that bonded with him, that was his magic that Yuno was using this whole time. So when we find out what he actually has, like, I'm 100% in. So I don't really get why people are so upset. It's not, Tabata's not pulling this out of his butt. So we're moving on. And we see Zenon is on the side of the fandom saying, two grimoires, what in the? It's at this point, Yuno fires a light spear at him some sort, which causes him to lose control. Longris, I think it was, is it Longris or Fenril that he has tied up? I think it's Fenril. Uh, releases hold of him, and we see some, we get some narration here. The Spade Kingdom's royal family has unique magic that's been passed down through the generations. His father, Lois, had sun magic. His mother, Siel, had moon magic. And the one who inherited their blood, and Xenon is kind of getting this realization of, wait, wait you're... And the narration continues, you know Grinberial. <laughs> Sorry, that name. Oh my gosh, uh, I have no right to criticize anyone who names their characters weird. Has star magic. Now, I think the sun is a star, so it's a little weird. Your your theme system here, moons aren't stars, but you know what? Whatever, I'm along for the ride. Xenon realizes that Yuno is the son of the royals. And we get Belle saying that she feels like she's finally met the real Yuno. And Yuno says, yep, can't beat it alone, though. Need that star magic. Excuse me, with just star magic, we need that wind power, too. So keep charging me up, Belle. She goes in, and we get this awesome little color. Uh, color. Wrong word. Spread of uh, Yuno just staring down Xenon, or Xenon, however the heck you want to pronounce it. That's going to be a running thing. I'm never going to pronounce anyone's name right. <laughs> just extend me some grace, please, as we're going through this. And he compliments both Finral and Langris. It's like, yeah, go get yourself healed up. And the Langris poor guy, excuse me, Fenerbahce poor guy is just like, I feel like Grimoire and the second Grimoire. And Langris says, seriously, what are you? Yuno looks at him back with a smug look, gives him the vice captain of the Golden Dawn. And they leave, and he casts a magic called Star Magic. Quartile Scudum. Which I'm guessing from the latter part is Latin. I only studied Latin for four years. I should know this, right? <laughs> So I'm going to set four something. And it creates this cube, so that would make sense. And it says, <clears throat> moves on to star magic conjunction. At this point, Yuno is using his magic to switch from one, par- one part of the stars he's making to the next, causing Zenon to not be able to figure out where he's going. Because star magic, quartile hasta. I guess that has something to do with speed. At this point, Zenon's like, I, I can't do anything about this. You know, says, I want to crush you. I'm going to end this fight right now. We get a, this little sick couple of panels with them, like going back and forth at one another. 
And it gets to the point, both of their heads are thinking the exact same thing. I'm the one who's right. I'm the one who will win. And that's the end of 309. So really great Black Clover chapter for me to start this podcast on. Uh, I'm really enjoying this part. I'm sorry. I'm second guessing myself. I'm trying not to use the word interesting after that debacle near the end of episode zero. It's just like, interesting. it was real nice. It's like, I thought about it the whole day afterward. Just like, I'm never going to use that word ever again in my life <laughs> because I just can't use it correctly. Because it's really cool. I mean, that's why I'm in here for Black Clover, really. I like, like I said in episode zero, like, in my opinion, it is babies for shonen. You know, there's a lot of tropes that are just in there. It's like your bog standard shonen. You got your hot blooded hero. You've got your aloof ally. I mean, they're basically Asta and, you know, our Naruto and Sasuke. Not one to one, mind you. So never let anyone tell you that's all they are because that's not true. But comparisons are definitely there. But this is what people are missing out when they say, well, I'm just giving up on it. And I understand people who just give up things after, you know, you know, one to three episodes, which is really bad for Black Clover. Because from what I understand, that was all of chapter one was like the first three episodes with a lot of filler thrown in. So, like, if you gave up after that, I get it. But it's worth the ride. And at this point, I really don't know how this is going to pan out. I mean, my guess would be he's not going to win just yet. You know. Uh, unless he does, in which case, uh, Zenon's uh, devil comes out to come into this fight like the previous devils have, or whatever scientist dude's name is. I think it's uh, from the Diamond Kingdom. He reveals whoever he is. He's going to backstab them and cause the cliff off to happen. Couldn't really tell you, but that's Black Clover. Moving on to Blue Box, and that will be Chapter 25. Good job. Good old Blue Box. <laughs> At this point, poor Taiki has just had to deal with losing in badminton. You know, you know, it's only, only, uh, what was it said? It's like, uh, good guys have no place in badminton or something like that. Oh my gosh, that was such a cringy line. And I laughed so hard. I was like one or two chapters ago when that was in there. <laughs> and I'm not the only one. People are having a field day with that line. Oh, but right now that's not his top concern because they're all having midterms. And unlike American midterms, we know that ultimately don't matter. Japanese midterms are a whole different beast. And right now he's not too, he's not the brightest person in the world, poor Taiki, but he's, he's putting the work in, but it's really getting to him. So much his friend, I forget his friend's name. Have they even mentioned it yet? I just know people call him Glasses Coon because that's like his one defining characteristic is he has glasses. <laughs> and they meet up with Hina, who's like, hey, hey, how's it going, Hina? And says, can you please not talk to me? And she, she's got this look of pure, determined focus of, yeah, I, I'm not dealing with your crap right now. I have to study. She's, I have no mental space to think about anything other than English vocab. So they both just bickering at each other. And eventually they ended up near the girls' basketball team, which not Sue Senpai is at. Uh, just getting ready for their, I think they're in, oh, that explains in the next panel. They have less than two months before nationals. And they even started practicing at night, which, from what I understand of Japanese school culture, is kind of weird. I was looking into it. It's like, most of the time, you're not going to be there that late. I think it's kind of frowned on because they want you at home studying. I'm not 100% on that. If anyone actually knows, please correct me. 
So Taiki gets this point. You know, he's trying to, you know, psych himself up and psych everyone else up. Says, we can't let him out do this. And he goes, <clears throat> goes away from the rest. And Hina and Glasses Coon, poor guy, has a name, I guess. He says, you know, he's really down in the dumps, isn't he? And after he lost to the prefectural qualifiers, he told me he'd already imagined it, but Natchinats is going to nationals. And he hasn't been able to talk to her. And it's this moment of, you know, they're feeling for their friend here. But, you know, there's what else have you got to do about it? I mean, he lost. That's what he was hyping himself up for. But we can move on to uh, Kingo Haru, who has been the person who's been helping Taiki, his, his senpai in the organization. Just And for those of you who don't know what senpai means, that means the person or people that are ahead of you in a grade. Like, um, for example, if I were in 11th grade and I had a friend who was in 12th grade, I would call him senpai because he's a grade ahead of me. Just like I'd be someone's senpai if they were a grade lower than me. A little quick Japanese lesson for you. So Haru has been, you know, is being congratulated by the team, you know, because he's got what it takes compared to everyone else. He's got the more athleticism, more more fire, and their coaches tell him like, "Look, with that over with, let's each write our goals and post them on the wall." And they're all taking this moment of, "Okay, well, what is my goal? What am I going to do?" And most people are just like, "Well, I want to go to the nationals." I want to win at nationals. I want to get into nationals. All these things. It's like, well, yeah, that's a nice lofty goal. As my watch goes off again, goodness gracious, I'm going to have to stop doing that. <laughs> and Taiki takes his time. It's like, what, what do I actually want from this? And I think he's the purest one here with his, his intention, where he says, I want to make my smashes be more precise, because that's what lost him the game. Uh, was it two chapters ago? I think that happened. Maybe one. I can't. I can't remember. My memory kind of dies after a while. But it's that that really. It just shows him in that moment. That's what he wants. That's more than anything, is to like be better. And sure, he wants to win at nationals, but he can't get there if he doesn't do this. He's small steps. And at this point, you know, he goes back home, and Shinatsu Senpai is there talking to his mom. That's he says he's sorry for being late. And Taiki's just in his room. It's like, he's like, he wanted to talk to her about his feelings for it because he wanted to talk about it after the win. But he didn't win, so now he's feeling down on himself. So it moves on to the next day, and the exams are over. And it looks like everyone did. Taiki says, I'll pass, which, better than not passing. <laughs> oh, just looking at these battles, it's so good. I, I love the art in Blue Box. It's a lot of fun. But in the midst of this, uh, Taiki starts sneezing and realizes, wait, do I have some type of summer cold here? And he says, you know what? It's time for a break. And here's Chinatsu coming back home again. And his mom congratulating her. And, you know, <clears throat> he, he goes back. Oh, gosh. It's coming over him. His head hurts. He gets down in his bed, face first in the pillow, and realizes, you know, I've definitely got a fever. Wish I could have a sports drink, but there's nobody home. I've got to be careful that I don't pass it on to Chinatsu Senpai. And this isn't good. And he's starting to remember in his flashbacks, like, his losses, how he's failed, everything. It's like, he needs to go and empty his head, but he just can't. All he can think of after those things are messing with his head are her. And he just you know, says to himself, I mean, we've all been here at some point, and just says, I'm so uncool. But he hears, no, you're not. And he looks over, and someone's patting his head. 
And he sees it, sir. And she says, good job. And that's how the chapter ends. So there's a lot of good, really positive things with the, this chapter. It's a lot of fun. It's good to see her, like, you know, encouraging him. But, I mean, I have my own personal little theory on this, my hypothesis, uh, which is very different from a scientific theory. Read them up. Is that it's not actually her. I think he's having a fever dream, which is cruel. But I wouldn't put, put it past the mangaka for doing this. That's my own little uh, hypothesis on the situation. Let's, we'll see if I'm right next week. <laughs> All right, moving on to Boruto. Goodness gracious, Boruto. Uh, Boruto! Chapter 63, Ask No Questions. Oh, gosh. Let's do it, Boruto. <laughs> so Boruto, Kawaki, and Code are all fighting one another at this moment. And they're staring each other down. And we flash back to Ida. And I, I don't like Ida at all. You would think, after all this time Kishimoto has had to write female characters, that he would have learned from his mistakes. But I stand her. She's talking to Code about how you know, that Boruto tracked Kawaki there. Kawaki erased his own chakra is what Code says. But she says, uh, I don't really know. That must have some type of special bond. And here's the line that really makes me despise Ida in this one. I'm jealous. Now, if you don't know about Ida, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is that she has this irresistible ability to draw men towards her. And Kawaki is probably one of the only people it won't work on. So I think she's focusing her goals on him to try and make her hit him. Excuse me, him, hers. Which is real creepy. Because she's clearly older than him. He's about 12. Not a big fan of that, but, well, what are you going to do? It's Kishimoto. And uh, Boruto's kind of like messing with, it's not messing with, like chastising Kawaki right now. He's like, don't tell me you were using yourself as bait to draw code out. Kawaki just kind of stares him down and says, I told you to stay out of it, Boruto. You're going to get killed. Boruto says, that's my line, idiot. You know who I am. How could I not follow you? To which Kawaki says, we're both fools then. So they stare down Code again. And there's this moment. It's, hey, don't be reckless. We can do this. But Kawaki, like, steals his resolve and says, I won't let Lord Seventh die, even if it costs me my own life. Mm. And Ida warns Code again, like, look, we only have so much time here. You've got to get this going. So Code looks up, says, you got spunk. I'll give you that. And what do you think you can do to protect a Hokage, Kawaki? Kawaki says, there's someone who wants me to meet me, right? Whoever they are, I want to talk to them, since I ain't getting anywhere with you. And, ugh. With our positive female representation here. But Kawaki wants to meet me, Ida says. And Kawaki continues, like, you said I was excluded from your vengeance list. The code I know would have thought to kill me first. You're letting me off for this person. Which means they've got enough influence to make an Ishiki obsessed crazy like you obey. Right? So I want to negotiate with them. Code looks at him and says, you're pretty sharp to have realized that on the spot. Are you sure? Not that I know or care, but you have no idea what kind of ridiculous demand they might throw at you. Kawaki continues, the people who want things for me have never been reasonable. I'm used to it. Code says, well, I was going to drag you there if needed, but you coming willingly is even better. Let's go then. Hold it right there, both of you. Quit talking over me like I'm not here, Boruto says. Kabuki tells them the mind is business, but once again, they're just going at each other like, dude, we're going to continue doing this. 
you're like, oh, you don't understand. Yes, I do. I'm doing this for Lord Seven. Like, whatever. And Boruto kind of punches Kawaki and says, look, I get how much you want to protect Dad. However, at the same time, it's my right to protect you. Right, bro? Ugh, I forgot this was in the chapter. Ida, away from everyone, says, oh my, seriously? That's so hot. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Sorry, I need to move on. I'm just going to dwell on just how much I hate that. So Code is telling, like, look, I revere you guys. Yeah, because Otsutsuki, oh my gosh, please, please say I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've seen, like, the movie once, and I'm not caught up with Boruto, the anime. <laughs> he says, you know, they're basically gods to me. And that's why it pains me to have to feed you to the Ten Tails in order to cultivate the divine tree. It's too cool a task for a devout follower like me. Borto challenges him, this, him on this says, why don't you just give up on this? Code says, no way. This is a perfect opportunity to test the quality of the intended sacrifice without anyone interfering. So Kabuki tells Borto to run away once more, and Borto tells him, I'm never doing that. My only chance is to kick his butt, isn't it? And then we flash back to Konoha for, I don't know, to pad out this story, even though definitely doesn't need it. We see Ino there uh, talking to Naruto. Uh, about how they can't find Kawaki or Boruto. It seems basically like he's erasing his own chakra. <laughs> he's talking to... Oh my gosh, does this ninja even have a name? It's the guy from the chapter before who just basically like failed at his duties, saw Kawaki go into a bush, and then leave a bush. And it said, hmm, there was nothing suspicious about that. <laughs> this, who is this loser? Is he based on someone? I don't know. But, like, he's wasting his time with Naruto. They're wasting each other's time. And it moves on, wasting Rear's time as well. So we get to the actual action of this, where Boruto is fighting Code using the Rasengan that he was taught. But, unfortunately, Code is able to get away. Uh, Boruto's won by Kabuki to go. As uh, Code throws some shuriken at him, I believe. Kind of hard to tell with the art. And at this point... You see Raitan lightning style, Thunderbolt. But those claw marks of codes are shown once again, showing that he was there at one point, but no longer there, able to escape just in time. He says, you know, not bad. This is fun, fighting a ninja. However, you're an amateur when it comes to karma. We see that he has a white karma. Now, karma, I'm not 100% on everything there. I don't remember everything in Boruto, but like Code overwhelms Boruto at this point. Kawaki notes how fast and strong he is. And at this point, he knocks away Boruto. It's no match. There was no surprise. It's what I expected. And Code says, do you know why you get drastically stronger when you activate Karma? Increased power and speed from improved physical ability is certainly a major factor, but that alone wouldn't result in such an exponential jump in battle strength. The real reason lies elsewhere, with Karma's true essence, which is the Otsutsuki's Combat experience accumulated over millennia gets overlaid upon your own mind and body. That's why you get stronger. In short, you instantly become a seasoned warrior. If you're able to draw on karma properly, that is. Now show it to me. I know you've got more than that. It's about to stop Nar uh, Naruto. Boruto. What's the difference, really? But at this point, Boruto gets up, and we see the Otsutsuki marking showing up on him. And they are reacting to this, and that's where the chapter ends. So... I mean, as much as I was disparaging at this point, this was a fun chapter. Outside of the filler moments, which 
in a comic that only shows up once a month. Why he would do that is beyond me, especially when the anime is running right now and they have to pad it over and over again. Like these kids should easily be 16 right now instead of whatever they are. I think they're like 12 or 13. Don't quote me on that. But it looks like this is what, and maybe one of the hidden purposes behind this is not Kawaki, but actually see this, see Boruto using the Osatsuki things right now. Maybe that's another hidden reason why Kota's there. Probably not. But I'm interested to see how it goes. So I couldn't really tell you what's going to happen next, but it's it's been fun. Certainly interesting, Christian. <laughs> so moving on to Dr. Stone. Dr. Stone. What a series. Z equals 214. At the last chapter, Yo and uh, Gin were both uh, petrified by the beam. Uh, you know, in the midst of the vacuum, they were trying to seal it up so that they could use it for space travel. And you see that their statues are like almost completely shattered. And so you see everyone else reacting on the ship, what's going on. And they think, oh gosh, could this be the big one meant to finish the job? But then Ryusei says, right, right about the year? Sinku looks at, kind of narrows his eyes. Yep, yeah, but just in case, let's back up another two meters. Then we're golden. See a big explosion from the Petra beam. Cool guys are looking at this explosion. And Senku and both of we are just kind of like geeking out over this, noticing how it was a 20 meter range. So they get back, they bring them back, <clears throat> they put them back together, and Gein and Yo are back to life. And we see that the Petra beam has destroyed the glass case it was inside of. Senku's kind of staring at it, just like mystified. And we see. Uh, I don't really know who's saying this because it's showing an outline, but it says, hmm, first off, we'll question the two witnesses from the scene of the crime. What happened? So it's probably Ryusui. Uh, Yo claims it wasn't him. Gein also says that it wasn't him either. We're kind of blameless. Before getting into any reasoning or deduction, here is the exact sequence of events. One, a clamor inside the safe. Two, the sound of glass cracking. Three, the click. Four, the flash. Sinku's thinking about the clamor. Could just spend a vacuum tube cracking, but we can't be sure about that. Gin continues. Meanwhile, no living soul so much as touched or spoke to the safe or the device. So, have a bunch of people speculating about what that could mean. <laughs> Kohaku's ready to kill some people, as it's often the case. You know, Chrome is kind of just sinking out real quick. Uh, Reese says, "You know, our starting point is the moon, based on something that Chrome says." We must nail down the exact location. So it's like, why man is on the moon, but where on its vast surface? So they're discussing, like, okay, where do we go? How could we narrow it down? And, okay, uh, Ukyo. Thank you, Ukyo. I was trying to remember character names. <laughs> There's so many, so many series. Oh, gosh, this is so much fun. It's forcing me to remember. I'm liking this. So he says, this is too risky, right? Better remove the battery for now, just to be sure. And Gein kind of accuses Yo at this moment of being behind it, but like that's just a screw with him. That's just Gein. That's why we like Gein. Or Gin. Or is it Gin? I can't remember. We'll go with Gin for right now. And he basically says to, you know, Sinku's probably figured it out as well. Someone scheduled this. And Chelsea. Yeah, not a big fan of Chelsea either. Says, you know, 
and actually get something right. So it probably says like, you know, three months, 20 meters to cause that to act when it did. Now, my guess from last chapter was that it activated because it was inside a vacuum and why man had like built these things to like, oh, well, if it's inside a vacuum, that must be it's traveling to space that are trying to get rid of me. So that's why it's activated. But instead, we get this whole thing about a potential mole. Uh, I'll get into the end of this once we're done with the chapter, like who I potentially think it could be. Uh, then we're moving on. Uh, Perseus D Monkey. I, I didn't, this is the first time I'm seeing that. Obvious One Piece reference is obvious. They go to the south of Japan to find selenium, uh, which is also arsenic and tellurium, which I'm with again here. These are more things I've never heard of outside of arsenic. And Sinku says they're all poison, which they're using to coat a photoelectric surface with these poisons so that light, meaning whatever the lens sees, is converted to electrical signals, meaning that he's using it on the TV screen to make a TV camera, to make a security camera to guard the Medusa. Wow. To think of where we started with the series to now, they're moving on to, to, to security recordings. It just blows my mind. We're 200 and some chapters in. It's amazing. They're, they're speculating, like, look, whoever, even in this new world, whoever controls the media basically owns the world. It's like, you know, yeah, you ain't wrong. But he says, we didn't make this for your amusement, Ryusui. It's for watching Medusa, right? Yen asks. Nope, Senku says. The real task is 10 billion times more important. It's going to tell us why man's location on the moon. Even our best telescope doesn't show us enough from down here on Earth, but picture this, an eye up in space beaming a live feed down to us so we can scan the moon's surface. Yep, we're doing this to remove what... This can be reveal why man's location. We're launching a satellite from our stony new world. So before they launch a rocket, they're going to get a satellite into space. Get excited. This was a fun chapter. Most of the time I do have fun with Dr. Stone. And like, even though this arc is kind of moving at breakneck pace, it is nice every now and then to go, okay, well, we obviously can't just use the rocket first to bring us there. Like, it's going to involve a lot of mathematics. We got to get everything right. So, where we land on the moon, well, even if we land on the moon, where we're going to actually go, I mean, it's not like we can last that long, you know, just exploring an entire moon by ourselves. We have to narrow it down. So, the fact they're going to a satellite is a nice change of pace. Now, onto the speculation itself. Like, what is going on here? So, I have two things to kind of bring up what could potentially be behind this. And my first one is maybe it's someone in the group also figured out the immortality issue. And that being that when you're petrified, it's essentially uh, like what people think cryogenics is, but it improves your body. So, I think at this point, it's only Senku. Oh, gosh. Senku. Who are the other ones? Gin and Tsukasa, who know this secret. And I don't think anyone else knows. So it's probably someone who figured that out as well, independently of them. And they said, well, hmm. We need to force this issue out in the open, because if we keep this a secret, someone's going to eventually find out, and that's bad for us. Maybe that was their intent behind it. Or, the one I prefer, is that it's someone who was hoping to take out Senku, hoping he would be around when activated and be far enough away from the crime scene to where no one would have suspected him. And I'm, that's why I'm guessing it was possibly Zeno who was using this to try and take out Senku, which means he'd have all the time in the world to get Stanley back, 
build up his forces in America again, and then take over the kingdom of science. We'll see. I po- Most of my hypotheses are baseless. We'll never see the light of day in this magazine, but you'll see them. You'll hear them on the podcast and know, wow, that idiot was not right. <laughs> so let's move on to Dragon Ball Super. Chapter 77, Bardock, father of Goku. We're flashing back to 40 years ago on the planet Serial, where the Serialians and the uh, Breakaway Namekians were living in peace. Unfortunately, one fateful night lit by the full moon, the Saiyans attacked along with Frieza's forces, turning into their Uzaru forms and started wiping out people right and left. And this is uh, Manito narrating this. We see, like, you know, the, the village elders trying to protect people, but like Frieza forces, we saw this on Namek proper. They're doing the exact same thing here. No mercy. The elder is alive long enough. Say, Dragon Ball's Manito. You know what you must do. And in Manito's narration, we say, I found myself the last surviving Namekian on the planet. And the Serialians didn't fare much better. And we see like the Uzari just wiping them out. Even with some of these uh, Serialians seem to have like. Key blasts and super strength and able to fly. They're fighting back as best they can, but it's just not working. And we see a young granola with his mother uh, about to be attacked by one of these Uzaru. But one of them is able to look at the moon, realize, oh, that's the source. If we destroy that, maybe we'll have a chance. So they destroy the moon, which is a recurring theme in Dragon Ball. <laughs> and it's destroyed completely which causes the Uzaru to revert to their natural Saiyan forms. But unfortunately for them, they're still Saiyans. So they're still strong, as we see. Is that Nappa? Oh my gosh, that's Nappa with hair. This is crazy. I didn't realize this the first time I read this. We're learning this live on the air. <laughs> that is totally Nappa. He says, sorry, pal, but we're plenty strong, even without our great ape forms. Strong enough anyway. Then they start killing the Serialians again. <laughs> And we see uh, one of the Saiyans there. It's like, look, we're almost done. Until Bardock is standing in front of Granola's mother. And he's looking down. We get this nice little one-panel one page of him looking her down. She, tries, she fires off a key blast, breaks off some of his armor. But then he has a flashback to where... Uh, what, is, what is Goku's mother's name? Gine? It's G-I-N-E, I think. Or maybe I'm making that up. It's been so long. But she's chastising him for not being there for Goku's birth. <laughs> and then, like father, like son, it says, oh, that explains why your tummy's flat again. <laughs> yeah, it says, I swear, do Saiyan men do you have anything resembling emotions? The little guy's in the incubator back there. Think you can help me pick a name? But Goku didn't have a name for several months. That's pretty bad. So he visits him. He kind of, like, stares at him. He says, you know what? We'll call him Kakarot. And he says, oh, that's a fine name. He says, grow up big and strong, my little Kakarot. As they eventually send him to go conquer another planet, which was the original canon, but I think I think it was the Broly movie that changed that to where they wanted him to be away from Frieza. I can't remember. But you see, one of the other Saiyans, I, I think his name is Leek, uh, talk to Bardock. Yes, Leek, that's his name. He says, hey, come back. Uh, uh, but no, Bardock says, I'm looking for survivors, so you just go on ahead, I'll take care of this, saving the life of Granola and his mother. And he's like, having this twinge of 
conscience of guilt of, you know, I just, I mean, he's had Raditz before this, but no one cares about Raditz. But it's Goku's birth that's kind of making him realize, you know, there's a bit more to this. And he, he senses something in, in the distance, like with a power level of five, but realizes it's not an animal, it's too intelligent because its movements are way too deliberate. So he brings Granola and uh, his mother there, uh, finding Manito. And it's at this moment, Manito, as he, uh, Bardock enters the house, he, he attacks him with his cane, and which Bardock remarks on, says, oh, your power level jumped to 213. Guess you can control it, which explains how you managed to keep hidden. Revealing that he brought, you know, uh, Granola and his mother there. Uh, she says her name is uh, Musely. M-U-E-Z-L-I. Yeah, Musely. And asked him if they can take shelter there. Manito says, of course. Uh, Bardock warns him, hey, Frieza is coming, and soon, keep hidden and off his radar. Manito kind of gives him a look. like, ain't you a saying though? What's your ploy here? And Bardock kind of just walks away like, a cool, like the cool guy he is. Says, just felt like it. That's all. I better be off. Keep surviving as long as you can. Manito says, wait, tell us your name at least. And he stops. And without looking, says, Bardock. So we go back to the present day. And Granola's having this crisis of faith. Like, that means I'm only alive thanks to a Saiyan's mercy? And Manito, I don't know why you kept this from him, but, you know, we wouldn't have the story without it. He says, yeah, sorry for keeping that from you. And he looks at Goku and says, you know, you're the spitting image of that Bar- Bardock fella. <laughs> In a typical Goku faction, fashion, he points at him and says, Me? <laughs> And he says, well, I, I didn't really know Bardock, but I was raised by Grandpa Gohan on Earth, so I don't know much about the Saiyans. And Vegeta looks at him and like, Kakarot, Bardock was none other than your father. And Goku says, my father? Really? And everyone kind of gets to, uh, not exactly a one-piece panel of being overwhelmed by the information, but like, for a Dragon Ball, that's pretty, pretty apropos. He says, well, wish I knew a darn thing about my dad, but I can't say I do. And Vegeta says, in any case, your soft-hearted nature clearly runs in the family. But Granola brings up a good point. Well, what about, his, about a, blah, what about his mother? How come my mother didn't survive? And Manito goes back into flashback. And he stops Bardock before he leaves. He says, hey, let me see that arm of yours. And he heals it for him. And there's this weird moment. Uh, Bardock senses something is up. And that's when he sees the heaters there. Now that is... Oh boy, let me remember the names with perfect clarity, he says, looking at his Word document. So Elek is the leader, Oil is the big one, Maki is the chick, and Gas is the other one. Not really well-defined, these characters, yet. Hopefully they'll change, who knows? We have to trust in Toriyama and uh, Toyotaro. Bardock clearly knows who they are, because he mentions that they act as intermediaries for planets that Frieza has conquered, and simply put, they're bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to sell this planet which uh, Alec uh, comments on like it's time now that they're out of the picture we're going to sell it and we're going to mess with Frieza <laughs> because eventually they're going to wait for Frieza to get a little weaker and then they're going to take over but they're all monologuing out in the open thinking everyone else is dead as they're all you know just listening in on him but at this moment Granola wakes up little kid Granola, and sees Bardock there, and like, screams out, a Saiyan? 
because he he doesn't know what happened. He was out for it, which brings the heater's attention on them. And at this point, Bardock pretends like he's going to murder them. And, you know, the heater's like, hey, we, we got this. Like, nope, nope. And they try to, Bardock tries to keep him alive for right now, but uh, Alec just cold to the bone, just shoots Granola's mom, um, usually in the chest, and she dies right in front of him. And Bardock uh, uh, goes off to attack them and gets the others away, leaving the heaters kind of confused, like, what's going on here? That doesn't make sense for a Frieza soldier to do this. And uh, it's ordered to go find them. <clears throat> but they don't, they're never able to find him because uh, Manito is able to hide his energy and they find the in the present the Dragon Ball. One of the Dragon Balls, at least. And now they're going after number two. So, that's Dragon Ball Super. Interesting how it's gone so far. Um, I'll be honest, I was not expecting the arc to go this way. Which is good. Because I liked it's forcing Granola to realize, hey, you've wasted all these years on revenge. And the people you're angry at are all dead. Like, Vegeta was not responsible for his planet being destroyed. Goku definitely wasn't. In fact, Goku's father actually saved him. That's that's a nice twist. So, that, that's Dragon Ball Super. Moving on to the elusive samurai. Man, talking for this long really gets to you. This will be fun, trying to learn how to do this correctly. <laughs> Especially when I go past all the... Uh, Shonen Jump series, which are the only ones we'll be focusing on. I don't think I mentioned that for this first episode. Only them and the comics for this week. So yeah, The Elusive Samurai Chapter 36. Warrior Woman 1334. And it's at this point I finally realized what actual year this was taking place in, even though that's been here this entire time. So I clearly pay attention to things. So after the last chapter, Tokiyuki was about to be found out by uh, people, oh my gosh, uh, Saramune and Ichikawa. Thank you, Christian, from the past for putting that in there, in the Word document. But Ayako was able to distract them by starting to play music and getting everyone to look at them, which means that Tokiyuki's heart that they were listening in on was able to be unaffected by all this. So they go out, and like, uh, Ichikawa says, you stop that. The conversation is important. This conversation is important. And Ayaka, like, I love the mental warfare in this series. She says, really? An important conversation with a child? We plan to leave soon, so troops from Sula are coming to the border. If we're late, there could be trouble. Uh, well, we're almost done. Young Lord, don't worry. I am with you. So at this point, they uh, interrogate him once more, but they realize that because of what Ayako has done, Tokiyuki's heart is all over the place, and he kind of like compares her to, and the way this series does historical allusions and stuff like that, that they wouldn't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anachronisms. That obviously they wouldn't know about, but you know the author will put in, it's like, he compares her to an idol singer. The way they're captivating people, she is captivating people, making them all focused on her. And it's because of that, his heart is unreadable at the moment. So they just say, look, whatever, just leave. Ichikawa says, that, is that it? Why not just kill him? But Satomune says, ever since the dog hunt, there's something about that boy. He openly showed his enjoyment at the dog hunt. 
and when I chided him, he meekly corrected his posture. Afterward, nothing I did could disturb him. In turbulent times, such a straightforward nature arouses suspicion. But it would be but it would be unrefined to overly press someone so apparently genuine. And we leave them there as Ayako and Tokiyuki are heading back. Ask her where she learned all that. And he says, in a sweet little, he's nine, by the way, I forgot all about Sadamune's suspicion and got wrapped up in you. And Ayako kind of like looks down and says, your honesty is unsettling. It's almost like a weapon. But at this point, Ichikawa attacks him. Having followed them after and says, you have lowered my lord's estimation of me. Yet you're all talk and party tricks. My skill at arms will put you in a drown. So Ayako prepares, excuse me, attacks to protect Tokiyuki. I, I got attack and prepared together. Protect. Goodness gracious, English. What a language. Especially when I'm the one wielding it. And she continually fights Ichikawa. <laughs> so I, just, I remember the panel she got with the, her drums. And she like forces it down over his head, putting him out of the fight. And she and Tokiyuki's like has a really awesome like one piece reaction panel. She used her drum and a stick to take him out and her own body. She uses anything she can. She isn't picky. She just protects her lord. And once again, she's about Tokiyuki's age. I think she's actually nine as well. And this small girl is beating up this older man. And it's like most of the time when this happens, it's like, oh gosh, well, of course, we're just doing this. You know, for representation's sake, but like, no, she's had the training, she's had the knowledge, he's not expecting it. I see this as a genuine win. So we go over histories of other female warriors in the same vein. See, uh, Tomoe Gozen, Hangaku Gozen, and uh, I believe if it's II, I think it's EA, Jiro. And you see, these are records of warrior women from across central Honshu. <laughs> We get to the panel where Yayako has like grabbed their arm around Ichikawa's neck. It says, awesome, now to rip off his head. Tokyo says, wait. We hear his messengers, not fighter. Killing him will make things worse. Well, you can behead him another time. And Yayako gives this really sweet smile and says, okay, how nice of you. <laughs> and later on, they've left the Ichikawa behind. They're going back on their horse to the shrine. She says, my lord, when you came to Shinano, I knew it was fate. A budding ruler was given me, was giving me the chance to be like my hero, Tomoe Gozen. I was grateful to you, so I rededicated myself to the arts of war and entertainment. I would use it all for your protection, and I'll bear you lots of children. So I eagerly await your advances. They're nine. <laughs> Toki says, does she even know what that means? It's a narration at heart. She has a loyal and buoyant spirit. She will be a strong and beautiful warrior. Well, but will I be a worthy lord? This was another fun chapter for this series. Uh, we got it was Yako's time to shine. I like it's giving all these different retainers of Tokiyuki their moment. Like, okay, this is what they're about. This is what they're capable with, and she really shined through in this one. I, I'm I'm a fan. I mean, when they're older, I'll ship it, but they're nine. <laughs> all right, so moving on to Hunter's Guild Red Hood. You know what? I don't know. It's oh, it's probably going to get axed. Do I really want to discuss this? You know what? I'll just go over the overview of this. They pass. Uh, we see Cinderella and the mayor discussing that, that it's over. The Hunter's Guild is finished. And she says, oh, you know, oh, so like, what are we going to do next? Like, hey, I'm like, hey, I'm being the giant wolf that's supposed to be with them, who is not there. And she goes, wait, who's that? Who's like, hey, And Devonair goes, 
is really impressed with everyone. And they talk about how Velo's plan to help them out, uh, get them all working together was what, you know, saved the day. And we get everyone else like, like, look, I was bummed because of last year, all the things that were happening. So that's all. I'm glad this thing worked out. And Grim is a little upset at how this, because, you know, you know, she wanted to be a little harder on this, but at the same time, Devonair is like, you know, busting her for, you know, you you didn't really want this. Uh, you, you really wanted this to happen. You're just being all Sundere about it. <laughs> so they end up going towards the Citadel headquarters, which is, uh, excuse me, the, the Ironworks, which is the ship. I had to remember that. Sorry, a lot of proper nouns here. So they're heading towards the Citadel, which is the Hunter's headquarters. And Cinderella's having that moment of, I can't remember who that is. And she reads a note from Lycaon uh, and says, look, if you don't remember who I am, it's because uh, the guy next to you stole the pages, which are capable of rewriting reality, it seems, and removed me from existence, and you should kill him. And Debonair and Grimm are talking over things, and she's talking to... Uh, oh, she was talking to Grimm and realized, wait, her memory's been affected. So she calls to the guild. Uh, to HQ, and says, look, our top priority is to protect the book. Uh, we're enacting an anti-corrosion protocol on status to level 5, says Adut Troidal, the corrections department director. Leaving Debonair kind of like confused what's going on, and they find out the rest of the group finds out they're under some type of quarantine, and we see this mysterious person in a hoodie with shadow all over their face, and uh, what was his name? That guy. Probably not going to matter, as this is probably getting axed. says, look, the true book's blank pages are the future. The words in it set the laws of nature and build the structure of this world. I had to do it. Oh, wait, no. This is the mayor speaking, I think. I had to do it if I'm to drag Grim, the Red Hood, out of a role and crown you, the Hunter Velu, as the main character in her stead. Now, I know I'm kind of rushing through this, but this was an interesting part of the series I actually liked, which I'm really upset that it's getting axed, more than likely. Because uh, it was this idea of, you know, being a part of the story and like in a meta way, like discussing the narrative. And as a writer, I really love things like that. But I mean, it's hard right now to get into this as it's going. So the mayor looks down at Velu, says, long, long ago, dragons through the sky, but the hunters eliminated, exterminated every last one of them. That's a story that I wrote 500 years ago. And that's one of the first lines that Grimm had said in the first chapter, if I remember correctly. Which, for having callbacks again, that's another clear sign to Christian right here that this is getting axed. And we see the mysterious person looking at the book. It says, 13 years ago, someone ripped out two pages and disappeared. Now those pages are taking effect. Oh my gosh, are these pages out of order? Oh, I think they're out of order. No wonder I was all over the place. Yeah, that... Okay. So it's not just me. It was, uh, sorry, Manga Plus was doing this to me. So it ended, <laughs> it ended with his confession uh, about the line about the dragons. So yeah, that was Red Hood. Sorry, that was a disaster. Well, well, we're moving on to Jujutsu Kaisen. Yeah, Jujutsu Kaisen, that is chapter 162, Tokyo number one, Colony part one. So we start with Yuji here, just murking the two people from, uh, last chapter, who are both using their hair as kind of like propellers. Almost like one is almost like a helicopter, and the other thing is more plane based. 
I can't remember. But and they're trying to corner him, like take him out so that they can increase their score in the culling game. Oh, wait, was it the culling game? I can never remember what you Jujutsu Kaisen. Proper nouns, man. They matter. But uh, the guy with the propeller hair is able to cut through some steel rods coming straight for uh, Yuji. Says, I'll make a smoothie out of you. But Yuji stands his ground, says he's coming this way and head first. Uh, noticing from the prior fight how the airplane woman had used her attack that he's figured out it is their hair doing this. So he stands his ground, says, I'll bust him open. But no matter, excuse me. <clears throat> And then he hits him right in the middle of his <laughs> propeller hair <laughs> with a great smash. We see the blood all over this man's face. Yuji's arm starts bleeding as well. And the guy starts laughing at him. Did your fist break? Looks like you're the loser of this fight. As he's kind of slurring his words from the blood in his mouth. And Yuji then kicks him. Or is he kneeing him? Nope, kicks him. Looks like right in the groin. <laughs> says, nah, it's not broken. And then he realizes, wait, oh, I kind of beat this guy up. Uh, I need to ask, uh, wake up about a sorcerer named Higuruma. Uh, Higuruma being, uh, we found out a couple of chapters ago, uh, was a former defense attorney, I believe, in Japan, where there's a 90-plus conviction rate. So basically, it's kind of like Cardassian court, if you're a Star Trek fan. Uh, as soon as the trial is there, you're guilty. It's just a matter of theatrics at that point. And he got upset, and that's where his cursed... Uh, abilities started activating around the time of this game. So they're trying to look for him to try and help with their mission, him and Megumi. Uh, and he looks down and says, uh, thinking to himself, like, sheesh, in these types of situations, when's a good time to ask questions? <laughs> he says over the unconscious person. Eugene never claimed to be a smart man. But we hear a voice from off screen that says, hey, Dory, I know that player, the one in Mihikuruma, and we see this man with like a yamaka on his head, which... I mean, it's what it looks like to me, but it's probably not. Maybe it's some type of Buddhist or Shinto item I'm not familiar with. He says, long time to see. Remember me? And you just like, how does he know my name? Uh, who are you? Do we really know each other? I tend to remember faces, but I think everybody's, oh, he's suspicious. Uh, says, sorry, I guess I only know you because you're famous. You're the tiger of West Junior High. He says, oh, you're from back home. What a dumb nickname. I didn't even pick it myself. And we flash over to Megumi, who is with, oh gosh, what was her name? Uh, Remy? Yeah, Remy is her name. And the guy's name was uh, Rin. Or Amai. Rin Amai? Yeah, Rin Amai. Uh, we'll choose one or the other. Who knows? And Megumi's asking, hey, you're not a sorcerer from the past, are you? That's another person they're looking for, in addition to Higuruma. She says, why? Do I seem frumpy? And stop calling me you. Like I care. Uh, what's your reason for choosing to fight? Well, non-sorcerers who are non-players got to leave the colony. But for players in the colony from the start, today is their 12th day of the culling game. I'll think, thank God I was in this. I was right. And I'm not doing this because I want to. It's kill or be killed. Spend time pondering the reasons to fight and you're dead. You learn that after 12 days. I've seen some players go mad with power, so stop thinking in terms of past and present sorcerers. And Megumi kind of thinks to himself, well, apparently past sorcerers have inspired today's sorcerers to go into battle mode. That means I've misled Itadori. He says, wait, you tell me where you're going. Nah, what's to stop you from pumping me off as soon as I do? But what if you die before we get there? Like I said, you gotta protect me and stop calling me you. 
And we move over again to uh, Yuji uh, saying, look, my name is Amai, Rin Amai. And so Yuji asks him, Amai, where is Higuruma? And we flash over. And both of them at the same time are asking them. And uh, Rin is saying that Higuruma is an Ikibukuro. But, goodness gracious, her name, Remy, is saying he's in Shinjuku. Got it. So they're both being told opposite information, and we get a scene where this uh, gentleman says, what's taking you so long? When is that kid going to bring me the next, next sucker? I don't believe we've met this person before. I could be completely wrong. I'm bad at faces and names, as you may have been able to tell throughout this whole podcast. But it seems to me that, well, obviously, at least one of these people is working with this man. Now, I'm going to throw in the conspiracy theory that it's both of them who are working for him. Um, but I do believe for sure it's probably Rin. I think from the way he's acting a little shiftier. And I think what Remy is supposed to be our red herring here if she is not working for him. Because I'm fairly certain in the chapter before, when she was talking to Megumi, that she had uh, wanted she wanted him to be her knight or something like that. And I think that was part of her cursed technique, was to get him to say yes to that. So it's activated, but she's not using it yet, just to like twist the knife in a little more. And it's probably going to be revealed later on because I don't think we know a curse technique yet. So once again, there's my conspiracy theory for the day for Jujutsu Kaisen. Now, moving on to Magu-chan, God of Destruction. Chapter 63, From the Ocean with Love. This is a fun little cute little chapter. Uh, Nabutaku is on the beach talking to his little hermit crab friends, uh, reminiscing about how they all met because of clams. Uh, so you talked about how he met Ruru the other day, and she told she told him about making uh, a dish with, uh, I believe, uh, clams, sake steamed clams, yes. And he calls his minions to work for him, which includes the giant shark that he also met in that time, which scares him away. The shark is known as the ruler of the sea, and it tries to help him out. Oh, no, no, that was during the fishing competition, that's right. So he runs away, uh, leaving a poor little shark. That's so sad. So he didn't call on me? <laughs> oh, gosh. Poor, the poor shark is so upset, and the crab's still there. And the you know, shark says, you know, sorry, little crabs, for disturbing you. Tell the leader I'm sorry, too. And he asks, Mr. Shark, are you leaving? I'm used to everyone being scared of me, even in the ocean. So the crabs are all so upset with shark. So says, we'll figure something out. You And get you and the leader on good terms. Just you wait, Mr. Shark. And the shark starts... <laughs> Starts crying. <laughs> Every now and then, Magu-chan makes me just chuckle. And we're about to get another good one here, because the hermit crabs start meeting. So they, they go to talk to Magu and Ruru, and they're asked to wait, uh, oh, wait a minute to bonds between Naputaku and his minion. I care not what goes on with Naputaku, says Magu. And Ruru, the more reasonable one, says, all right, let's, look, let's talk this over. But they go over, <laughs> and Magu says, I'll give you my wisdom. I shall grant you my wisdom. If you want to hire Bean to recognize the shark as a minion, then prove to Naputaku that he is strong and loyal and strong. My minion BS has rushed to me in times of need. He put his own life in danger to overcome many peril. 
If the shark can save Naputaku from a crisis, then he too shall be recognized. So they agree to work together on this. So one hour later, Naputaku is out. <laughs> and we see the hermit crabs with like, these little comet sunglasses <laughs> look like <laughs> delinquents. <laughs> Even says, a bad boy hermit crabs. <laughs> <laughs> There's no real way to describe this panel without just busting out laughing. It's just so cute. And he's like, hey, you there, leader, you big lug, give us your money. Napataki's like, yeah, whatever, money. You want my wages for my part-time job? We're not hermit crabs. We're bad guys, and we're here to steal your money. This, this is extortion. If it's an extra portion of meat you want, I'll get you one next time. It's like, oh. Then the shark appears like, leader, I'll save you. But he runs away, more scared of the shark than everyone else, even picking up the hermit crabs. Says, oh, you can't eat alive. We see the narration, Operation Villain was a failure. <laughs> so you try again, getting Uneris to help this time. And I love Uneris. I know some people don't. I think some people actually think she's the worst part of the series. But I love her. She says, oh, look, we'll give you a complete makeover. I'll make you super cute. And make Napuchan fall, fall head over heels for the new you. That's when I find out that uh, the rule of the sea is actually a girl. So, shocking revelation there. So, Inaris puts her in a kind of a magical girl outfit called Magical Minion, Napu Shark. And allows her to fly. And, which freaks Napu Taku out says, oh no, she's gotten airborne. Please let me be. And it, which fails the mission yet again. And Inaris is like, what? I wonder where I went wrong. Magu says, it's your sense of style. <laughs> So uh, the ruler of the sea is like, oh, you know what? Forget this. I- I'm not worth it. It's too soon to give up. Ruru says, shouting from the beach. Are you really okay never telling Naputakun how you feel? To be honest, I can't understand a word you're saying, but I know that you love Naputakun. Just look at me and Napu-chan, and Magu-chan. We're a human and an octopus, but we get along together well. Things can work out. Meet with him and talk it out. And so on and so forth. So an hour later... I meet up once more. Magu forces Napu Taku to come there, and they talk. And she says, you know, thank you for calling me, calling to me in the sea. I've never felt wanted before. I've always been alone in the sea, so I want to thank you, leader. And Napu Taku says, well, okay. So she found a pearl from, uh, uh, a clam from the bottom of the ocean, which has a pearl, and she gives it to him, says, it's my beautiful treasure. Please accept my feelings. And Naputaku, not understanding any bit of the subtlety, takes it and then makes sake steam plans from it, completely ruining her her intentions here. So she, she hits him with her fin, saying, you jerk, as we have our Sundere shark. Congratulations, everyone. And she swims away. And so we get after that, Naputaku apologized profusely to the shark and managed to cheer her up. As a result, the distance between them closed some. So just a cute little wholesome chapter. That's what you primarily get out of Magu-chan. Like, it's not, you know, there's nothing really in the world, even though it's involving eldritch abominations and the cute little chippy-fied forms. So, no, just moving on to Mashal. Magic and Mushles, muscle, Mushles. Chapter 82, Mash Bernadette and Infancy. <laughs> I love Mashal so much. It's so dumb. It just gets me. Uh, at this point, we it's in the middle of the night, and we see, uh, uh, gosh, what's his name? Domina. Uh, as he's going about, like, attacking uh, seemingly random people in the process, 
as some magical enforcers try to take him down as a giant dragon attack created by the magic. Uh, unfortunately, it's not enough for to take Domina out. And excuse me. And you know, they fight it over and over again. One of them loses their arm. It seems like one of them is cut in half. And even more show up. Uh, I can't remember if these are supposed to be characters we know or not. I'm so bad, once again, with faces and names. It looks like it may have been a diversion. And yep, the, the first attack was a diversion, meant as a distraction. They created clones, so they attack him again. But he charges through their magic uh, using a spell called Undeath Wall. And managed to get away from them once again. And they ask, what's that guy's story? And we see, 15 years ago, a child was born in the magic world. Domino Blow Alive. What a name. I love the names in this series. They're so, they're so stupid. Set <laughs> War is my personal favorite. The magic power this newborn could emit was so powerful it destroyed the very structures around them. Those demolished buildings were <laughs> rebuilt by another newborn. As we see, Mash Bernadette, five months old, with <laughs> a little bit of hair in his forehead. <laughs> He's got a hammer and some, some blocks of wood. You see, Nash and Domino were born in the same year. Domino threw destructive fits all day. The physical manifestations of his magic pulverized even stone walls. Adults passed out from being in contact with such overwhelming power. Everyone trembled in fear before the baby. This baby. The midwife was certain that this child would grow to be a magic user of unimaginable power. Meanwhile, Mash, who had no magic, engaged in carpentry. <laughs> Sunday's little five, five minutes old, just building stuff. <laughs> little Jesus. His talent for carpentry was admired by everyone. His DIY skills kept improving to the point where he could even construct whole cabinets. <laughs> the midwife was certain that this child would grow to be an excellent carpenter. <laughs> Is Mash supposed to be our Jesus figure in this story? If anything, this chapter confirms it. Oh, gosh, I love this dumb series. <clears throat> it's, Domino had a deep, abiding respect for his father, that being Innocent Zero. Was... Uh, his admirations of his father's staggering power was completely instinctual. Soon after his birth, he knew his life existed for this man, his power for serving him. One night he asked himself, what did this lack magic child receive the same treatment as him? How could the two of them be the same? Just like larger raptor chicks attacking their smaller siblings to monopolize their parents' attention, Domina also instinctively tried to kill Mash. Domina learned to control his magic to use against Mash. <laughs> So we see in the panel, Mash and, <laughs> crawling all over the place, avoiding all these arcs of magic, trying to destroy him. And we see uh, the midwife says, what? Zigzagging inertial drift. Entering a curve at high speeds, the driver executes a severe turn, maneuvering the front wheels without losing speed. As we get our Fast and the Furious montage here, <laughs> she says, he's using top tier driving techniques at just five months old, which apparently there are cars in this series. I don't remember there being there before, but you know what? Sure. Whatever. I'm fine with it. If we can have magic, we can have cars, right? <laughs> Seeing Mash dodge his attacks with inertial drift, Domina could immediately tell that, like him, Mash was on another level. A few <laughs> weeks after that, Mash disappeared, and Domina realized. Shits <laughs> a panel of Mash in his diaper, just holding, holding his hammer and the blocks of wood and just walking away. As long as Mash lives, Domina would never have their father's full acknowledgement. Dominant desires became warped and would only be satisfied on the day he rid himself of Mash Bernadette. 
You say, on the day of the final exam, both groups from both academies have joined. <laughs> it looks like the time has come, Mash says. <laughs> At Greek Grief Manor. Wow, what a name for a place. And we see that uh, Mash is on piggyback right now. Uh, on God. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You say, congrats on not running away like chickens, despite knowing you're going to lose. Let me know before you stand up. I think, uh, was that Marguerite saying? No, wait. Oh, I can't remember your name. Uh, it's safer that way. And uh, Don says, just give me the word when you want to move forward. The game's called Chicken Fight, not Chicken Run. <laughs> and Finn, with his usual reaction face of screaming, and like, they're not even listening. Wow. I was trying to think of potential matchups. Uh, as we end this chapter, for what will be happening later on. But that all depends on like how this uh, another tournament is going to go. Uh, it's supposed to be three on three on three because uh, there were three schools. schools. But now it's six on six because everyone's bad at math and everyone's cheating. So I don't really know, but obviously it's setting up MASH and Domina. But I don't see that happening first. So once again, MASH was Mashable Magic and Muscles was a lot of fun. So we move on to our next chapter, uh, which is our next series, which is My Hero Academia, chapter 330, Me and Myself. When last we left, Star and Stripe was coming to Japan in true American fashion on a bunch of jet planes, ready to solve everything, you know, because America is going to save the day. This is how things go. And her pilots are asking her, well, what's our play as uh, Shikaraki is heading towards her? Uh, what's our play, offense or evasion? She says, do you even need to ask? We smash. <laughs> Which is the American way. She says, there's a villain to take down. I'll make sure your remains back make it back to you. <laughs> I forgot about that line. <laughs> it's, it's simultaneously awesome and terrible at the same time. It's like, I, I like this. I like this new character, but uh, there's some unfortunate things happening later on. We'll, we'll get to that. And Shikaraki says, It's a strange state I find myself in as he's riding on a Nomu, heading towards her. I can truthfully declare that I am Tomura Shikaraki, but at the same time, there is no doubt that I am also me. And you see him use several of the quirks he has in him. Radio waves, plus air cannon, plus heavy payload. I felt this ever since I've reawakened. And Star and Stripe moves up, uh, tells her men to evade, and she goes, says, well, well, you would say who will be the first to tag the other. She's heading towards him, bouncing off of jets all over. <clears throat> and she says, air. And we get some narration. Star and Stripes quirk. As of now, the air does not exist 100 meters ahead of me. And we see new order with the American flag behind it. Let's see how many stars are this. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think we're missing one for the original 13. But whatever. Who cares? It's counting it for fun. After touching a target, she can call out the target's name and assign a new rule to it. How about you die with this, she says. And she writes this, ah, oh, brutal quirk. I want it. She says, well, a guy who came all this way to meet me probably wouldn't drop dead that easily. Laser cannons as her jets fire all at once at Shigaraki. And if this was anyone else, he would have been completely incinerated because they all hit. But with that regeneration he has... He's able to come back and says, that got him good, one of the pilots says. Good shot. Good shot, me. 
He shot me. Like, oh, that was you, Wedge. I shot first. So we get another uh, another Star uh, I almost said Star Trek. Goodness gracious. Star Wars reference here, as Horikoshi is really fond of doing. And Chigaraki counterattacks. And she said, uh, Star and Stripe says, the laser is holdable. And as she's able to cause the laser he just shot to kind of like dissipate and prevent it from attacking anyone else, she knows his body is healing. No wonder Japan lost to this guy. And Shigaraki notices that when she did this to make the laser holdable, the vacuum she created is gone. Does New Order have a limitation of some sort? Is this my chance? So he goes after her. And she's able to smash him. It says, you know, you're playing right into my hands. And she goes into a little monologue. Years ago, a Japanese student studying abroad saved me. My family and I were on our way to the Santa Monica Pier when it happened. A burglar on the run attacked us in our car. At least let my little sister live, I cried. I was ready to face then, face death, but then Tomura Shigaraki. And we get a little in our mind here. I can only set new rules for up to two different targets at once. One of the two is always myself. I can't quite conjure up super strength on All Might's level, but I'm not too shabby. And we continued the narration from before. He was there. I'll never forget the sight of those two hair tufts. He was my role model from that day forward. As a show of my own even greater dedication to peace, I went for eight tufts. <laughs> and we see that's because she has eight tufts in her hair compared to All Might's two. And if I remember correctly, we may have actually seen this rescue in the first My Hero movie where we see All Might working with David Shield in America. I could just be making it up. It's been like two or three years since I've seen the movie. But if so, that's a really nice callback. Uh, were they planning for Star and Stripe? This, was Horikoshi planning for that long? Who knows? I wouldn't be surprised. Now that he's had time to create the series. It says, it's, uh, Shigaraki says, there's no escaping him. That cursed All Might. Star and Stripe says, he's called a symbol of peace after all. Anyway, I've touched you and said your name. So now, if Toga Tomura Shigaraki moves at all, his heart will stop. But at this point, All for One starts speaking in his head, trying to take over. It says, your sheer hatred, your drive for destruction. The doctor and I had our expectations, and you rose up to blow them, blow them away. Percentage-wise, I say 97, perhaps 98. We will soon become one. We will become one soon enough. No longer All for One, nor Tomura Shigaraki. We now meld into a new person together. Shigaraki yells out, no! And Star Stripes says, wait, it didn't work? Is he not Tomura Shigaraki? Not in favor, are you? Well, I sure am. Do you detest me? Let that rage flow, Shigaraki says. Your hatred delivers us to our glorious future. Or was that all for one? More like all for one. And we get a flashback. It began in that house with a grain of hate that grew and built upon itself. The house Shigaraki was in with his family died when his quirk activated. And it's this gigantic explosion in midair. And that's where the chapter ends. So I have some misgivings about this one, even though this is a very fun chapter. And my misgivings are, once again, Horikoshi brings a cool woman into here, like, awesome power set, you know, lots of bravado. Only, I'm very scared that he's going to steal her quirk, and she's not going to have any powers again. And we're going to lose another potentially good female character in this way. It's... It's disappointing if that's true. I don't want it to be true because I love my hero. I, I love a lot of the female characters there. I love Achako. I love Nejire. 
but this, there's been so many opportunities where they could have shined, but someone else takes it, or they're beaten by something that shouldn't have caused them as many, many problems as it did. I, I, I don't know. So that's my fear, that uh, with the explosion that Star and Stripe is unable to save herself, my hope is that she creates something just in time where maybe Hawks can arrive to help out and help her get away from Shigaraki. And maybe this moment of the two all for one and Shigaraki fusing allows them the time to get away. But I'm not really, I'm not holding out hope for that. So as far as the chapter goes, I really love her quirk. I, I love her motivations. It's like, this is America's number one hero. Yes, this screams American dream all the way. I love it. Uh, the new rule quirk that's a lot of fun like she keeps the one on herself to always give herself super strength but the other one is always flexible so i saw some people complaining about this oh it breaks the rules of of quirks and you remember the whole talk about quirk singularity forever ago this is a clear example of that i mean airy herself can rewrite reality to an extent around her like causing things to uh what was it where he thing uh Something Deshun or whatever it was, I reject. That's basically what it is to an extent. So, that, this is a fine chapter. I'm just a little wary of what could happen. Now, moving on to Spy Family, Mission 54. And we see Yor facing off with one of the assassins as uh, Twilight slash Lloyd is with Anya, talking about the fireworks being pretty. Uh, until Anya realizes, after Lloyd says her, uh, yours name, it's like, wait, oh, crap. We weren't talking about, I was supposed to help mom, but like any old, you know, four-year-old, I think she's actually four, pretending to be six. I can't remember. She gets distracted easily. I mean, I work with children. That's what they do. Uh, at this point, uh, Twilight starts listening in on other people and reading some of their lips. I find out that there's a bomb inside the boat. As Anya reads his mind as well. And the two of them realize they have to ditch the other to get to work. So <clears throat> Lloyd uh, brings Anya to a kid's room to put her there. And as soon as his back is turned, she leaves, leaving the little kid's room behind as well. He heads off to go disarm the bomb, and she's heading off to go help Yor. And so he puts on one of his mini disguises, which is what he's best known for says, pardon me, but I used to serve as a bomb disposal unit technician in the Marines. Maybe I could help. Super convenient he's there, but they don't question him because, like, yes, please, remove this bomb. He says, hmm, a BCP-62 with a time detonator. Well, favored by Western extremists. Is it targeting the Eastern VIP or the ship itself? And he just can't help himself. Like, he's in full spy mode. Like, let me question everything. That's one of the things I like about Lloyd is, like, you know, he's perfectly calm in the moment, but in that, you know, when it seems calm on the outside, like on the inside, he's covering all of his bases. And he says, no, the agency would know if any operations like that were in motion. Perhaps this has merely been engineered to look like a Western operation. And the guy next to him says, so what do you think? Is there anything you can do? He says, don't worry, I've got this. So Anya's running off. And uh, she's overhearing the thoughts, uh, shots, thoughts of, there's that lisp again. I believe this was a guy who was listening in to all the conversations on the ship. I can't remember for sure. And he's trying to make uh, makes his, make his escape because uh, he knows the boat is about to blow up. Um, 
So Anya's overhearing his thoughts and realizes where Yor is at. She's on the roof deck. So she heads up that way and she sees, <laughs> I don't remember what they're actually called, but she calls it, that's one of Mama's stabby things. And we go back to Yor uh, with the power of her kicks, which is one of her best assets in this fight. Uh, she's continually uh, fighting this assassin, but like, I can't finish him off. I don't have the reach. And she's getting shot from the other assassin there. And Anya realizes, oh, so mom is way up there because she's reading her thoughts. And she can't win without a weapon. I'm too far away to hear clearly. Where are the stairs? But there aren't any. So she looks at the stabby thing. It says, then I guess it's up to me to save mama. And like imitating your, she kicks it up in the air. <laughs> and in true Junbio fashion, says, oh, lightning bolt, deliver my aid. Rising hope. And throws it up, but it only goes up one floor, which is pretty impressive for a four-year-old. <laughs> and she gives, I love Anya's looks. Like, this mangaka just has a way of, like, maping, making a perfect, just with her, like, single-panel look of, this is smug satisfaction right here. I saw a child with that face, I know exactly what was going on in their mind. <laughs> but she doesn't realize she didn't get it the way she wanted. But two other assassins are on that uh, floor, and they're discussing, like, okay, we gotta do this, we gotta get the hell out of here. But one of them slips on the stabby thing, <laughs> which causes <laughs> humor great. It does it really well. Causes him to slip on it, which makes him fall. Causes him to shoot his gun in the process, nailing the other guy in the leg as he forces himself into the trash and the stabby thing ends up in his butt. <laughs> we go down to another smug Anya panel. This is exactly his plan. All according to Keikaku. <laughs> Yor says, oh, is thinking, wait, gunshots behind me, huh? And she looks behind her and says, like, wait, that's my... And she finds her stabby thing and looks at the assassin who says, come then. I will end this with one last strike. And they head off to get each other, and the other assassins are lining up his shot, but uh, Yor's handler is able to shoot him, preventing her from being shot, and she takes down the other assassin in a nice one fell swoop. Uh, Anya realizes Mama's fight is over. Says, Mama won! And in parentheses, thanks to me. <laughs> you see, uh, Lloyd has disarmed a bomb. It says, <clears throat> Dealing with the bomb wasn't half as stressful as being surrounded by USSS agents. And he looks down, feeling a little unsatisfied with this for a moment. Almost like he suspects this wasn't it. And we flashback, excuse me, not flashback, uh, flash to a different scene where we see the gentleman from earlier that Anya had read thoughts of as he's fleeing the boat says, Farewell to you, Princess Lorelei. You sink beneath the waves, serenade me with your screams. And we see there's a second bomb on the ship. Whew. I love Spy Family. It's a lot of good fun. Uh, I love Lloyd. I love Yor. I love Anya. I love seeing these three dorks and varying, varying degrees of dorks like try and be a family together as one of the great appeals of this. And they're all shining really bright, brightly in this chapter. I mean, Lloyd is Twilight, like his shtick is I can be whatever I need to be, let me put on this mask, I'm this new person, perfectly in there. Anya is a little chaos gremlin, that's what she does, that's what she's great at. 
And as a result of that, she's able to help your <clears throat> who's great at killing people. That's her job. So this is another fun chapter. And that is the end of our manga discussion for this, as we have two comics to cover. We'll be covering uh, Fantastic Four, issue number 37 by Dan Slott. Oof. But uh, that was bad of me. Uh, I actually enjoyed this a lot. Uh, so as much as I've uh, dealt with Slot's uh, previous issues, this one was a breath of fresh air. Uh, so we started the cosmic, uh, excuse me, the Casino Cosmico, where once upon a time, it was the most lucrative business in the universe. But now the profiteer is upset because everything's gone wrong. She's lost all of the money that were coming in. The, the galactic economy is in shambles. Like, well, welcome to the club. She says, well, we were making money when we had Jovin and Nikala here. Because uh, so those who don't know, uh, Jovin is a Kree. And Nikala is a scroll. And in Marvel history, they've all Kree's and scrolls have always hated one another. And they would use them to reenact fights with one another. Uh, people would bet on it who would win. But they were saved by the Fantastic Four uh, during the events of Empire, if I remember correctly. And uh, these two were adopted by uh, the Thing and Alicia Masters. Well, I believe it's Alicia Grimm now. I can't remember if she took his name or not. I don't see why she wouldn't. Uh, to be their children, where they're known as Joe and Nikki. So the two of them are plotting about their Halloween takeover. Uh, they realize that her ability as a scroll to shapeshift would be perfect, and his ability uh, to like you know, dress himself in different ways, like he's going to cover up himself with bandages to become a mummy first time. And their plan is to use each member of the Fantastic Four to get themselves as much candy as possible, because that means this... Halloween is a war, and they're going to win. So they take Franklin and Val, and the less said about what Slot has done to Franklin, the better. Uh, but there's, like, uh, Frank says, Val, we're going to be late. She says, well, Joe, Nikki, you think we can hurry this up? Franklin and I have an older kids party to go to. And Nikki says, really? You'd have us rush out our first and only night trick-or-treating? They say, trick-or-treat. And we go to the next panel, where Sue is there, having been tricked by them to go. And in the next panel, we see Mr. Fantastic, more like Mr. Distracted, that we could get him to take us multiple times because he right now is very uh, out of sorts, like learning once again that Nathaniel Richards, his father, has another family out there outside of the family he's already had. What was her name? Huntara? Or am I making that up? I don't remember. I have to look into it. But uh, he received a message from his dad, said, look, I've got another family out there. I need you to look after him for me. And that's all he's on his mind. But we see uh, Joe and Nikki returning back at their house saying, Mission accomplished. Behold, our high fructose trophies. <laughs> to which Joe says, and we still have one more round to go. All we requires our red-headed matriarch and Commander Grimm. Meanwhile, at the all-new Baxter building, uh, the Thing and Johnny Storm are hanging out, uh, playing hangman because, oh gosh, here we go. Into discussions. But other stupid things is Johnny's been acting like a frat boy instead of the adult that he's been for years. He slept with Victorious, who, goodness gracious, was uh, a woman, not originally, was a, an immigrant to Latveria from Sincaria, I think. Can't remember. But he empowered her with the power of Cosmic to become kind of like his uh, bodyguard uh, and was planning to marry her is like this great union. He invited the Fantastic Four there 
to enjoy it. Johnny slept with her because, you know, Johnny's 16 still, even though he's not. Being, uh, I would argue, not petty for him. Uh, I'd be a little upset, too. Uh, managed to cause Johnny's ability to flame on to be so destructive, like he's continually raiding any heat and he can't shut it off. So right now he's stuck with the thing who's wearing an oxygen mask to kind of like, you know, protect himself, uh, giving him the ability to breathe while, you know, with his rock hard skin, he's able to take the heat a little better than other people. And they're both playing a, a fiery game of uh, hangman. But the clues are, uh, there's only two options left out of C-L-B-B-E-R-N-G. And if you know the thing at all, there's only one answer for that. And it's clobbering time. And he says, you know, just to poke fun, he's like, are there any A's? And Johnny says, Ben, come on, for real? So I'm just messing with you. Besides, I should be going. Tonight is my kid's first trick time trick-or-treating. And there ain't no way I'm missing that. Johnny says, wait, you sure you can't stay just a little longer? Ever since my powers got stuck like this, I can't stand being alone. And Sue, Reed, Franklin, and Val, everyone's got plans tonight. Things as yeah, don't sweat it, Johnny. We got you, got you covered. I set up a play date for you with one of your uh, one of your super friends. He said to meet him at the usual place. I take it you know what that means. And Johnny smiles and he says, "You know, it's been a while, but yeah, I do." And we go over to the Statue of Liberty, which for your longtime Marvel fans has been the place where Spider Man and the Human Torch have often met with one another, like you know after dealing with crises or like they just want to hang out with each other like and normally the torch will like make a gigantic four over the statue of liberty now i mean spider-man will go that way uh, stuff like that so this this is a really nice callback from slot and when he does stuff like this he's just really good at these jobs like the man does care about continuity to an extent so we see <clears throat> excuse me we see spider-man sitting on the statue of liberty saying hey flame face what kept you he says, Spidey, before I get too close, there's something you should know. He says, yeah, yeah, the thing told me. Your flame's cranked up. Big whoop. Come on, bring it in. I can take it. As the spider sense starts going off, he says, yeah, I was wrong. Horribly wrong. You are freaky hot. And Johnny says, that's what I was trying to do. Back up, down up, Storm. Make like a truck. Beep, beep. Way back. So we get a scene transition. So Johnny is in a containment suit, but even in the containment suit, his fire is just that hot that it's leaking out. So Spider-Man says, wow, what in the little blazes happened to you? Well, long story short, Dr. Doom and a giant ray gun, and now I'm stuck like this. And Spidey says, and Reed can't fix it? Not yet. Any advice? Spider-Man says, hmm, um, hang in there? <laughs> Twitch, Torch protests, that's the best you got, Pete? That's a cat poster? But it's true, I mean, look at me. I've been bonded with a symbiote, shrunk to, uh, shrunk to six inches, brain swap a Doc Ock, Turn into a Hulk and lizard and a lizard, and my personal favorite grew six arms. Uh, so yeah, that's from Secret Wars with the symbiote. Uh, the shrunk to six inches, I think, is from one of the annuals in the '90s where he was with Ant Man, and I think it involved the microverse. It's been a while since I've read that series. Uh, I think it went over several annuals actually. Uh, the brain soft with Doc Ock was, of course, right before Superior Spider Man. Uh, the turn into a Hulk uh, was that in. Was that an amazing Spider-Man or one of the... I can't remember where that happened. And turning to a lizard, kind of the same thing. And my personal favorite, the growing six arms, that was Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 100, if I remember correctly. It's when, one of the first appearances of uh, Morbius. Uh, so continuing on, he says, What I've learned, Johnny, is all that matters is that you stay in the game. At any moment, something can come along and turn it all around. And in the meantime, you know what helps? Reminding of 
yourself of everything you've got going for you. Like the last time you hung out, we hung out. You told me about the new, this new girl you're with, Sky, and how she's your soulmate. See, that's nice. Switch Johnny says, yeah, about that. <laughs> I cheated on her with Dr. Doom's henchwoman, and Doc at me with more cosmic rays, which also went to her because of our, our magic bracelets, turning her into a bird monster. So she broke up with me and went back to her home planet. There's a pause, and Spider-Man says, Huh. Yeah, I... I... I, I got nothing. That sucks. <laughs> Where was this slot in his entire run with Spider-Man? Like, it's like, did he only figure out how to truly write him after he was done being the head writer? It's like, oh, that's so infuriating. I, I love their interactions. I've always loved their friendship. It's one of the one of the greatest parts of the Marvel Universe to me is, you know, their relationship with each other. Like, they are practically brothers at this point in time. And this is a great scene between them. But moving on to uh, a Yancey, uh, Yancey Street. Yancey Street. My Southern coming out again. Uh, we see uh, Joe and Nikki ready for their trick-or-treating. <laughs> and they've realized that uh, they've been hiding the candy from them already because they're smart parents. So they're going to make them go <clears throat> and bring the candy back, to which uh, Joe says, I, Commander. Which has one of the recurring themes so far is that he's been referring to uh, the thing as Commander because he, his entire life he only understood military structure, which is hugely important in this story. So they go out uh, with a sign that says, we are sorry, and they give back their candy to the people that they extorted from. <clears throat> but at this point, they're interrupted by the arrival of the profiteer's minions, who are going to take them back, is what they swear. And they attack, and Thing says, good point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my place. And the Thing says to them, alright, where do we Grimms stay at times like this? And they say, it's clobbering time. He says, ha, regular chips off the old block. So Alicia starts calling the Fantastic Four to come get the help. Uh, but unfortunately, Sue and Reed are not hearing this because he's listening to the message from his dad. And she's trying to give him some comfort in this. Uh, he's like, Reed's talking about uh, finding out about, you know, a sister I never knew I had. He says it's not even his first secret family. <laughs> Which is true. And she says, your siblings in Elsewhen? I've never even tried connecting with them. Not really. What am I not seeing? Why was this woman so important to him? That's not the question you're really trying to answer, Reed. It's okay, you can say it. He says, My mother and I. Why did he keep leaving us? What was he looking for? What was out there that was so... Why weren't we... Why wasn't I good enough for him? And he has this nice moment between the two of them, or they you know, just, without words, just hug each other, and they're just there for each other. And that's what I, I've always loved about... Sue and Reed. It's like, you know, they don't always see eye to eye. But like, at the end of the day, they love each other. They're always going to respect each other and take care of each other. And my, even Slot can't ruin that. <laughs> Sorry, Slot. That, that's awful. I need to stop beating you up for what's not your fault this time. So in the process, uh, uh, back at Yancey Street, uh, the children are almost taken out by gas. But Joe, seeing this happening, uh, seeing uh, Nikki about to be taken down by this, kind of freaks out and says, we are not going back there. And he starts, like, 
ripping through these soldiers working for the profiteer. And thing is like, wait, Joe, don't do it. But he starts killing them right and left. Uh, are these robots? Are these aliens? I'm thinking they're actually aliens. And, excuse me, uh, Alicia starts freaking out as well. Profiteer says, no, those are my finest men. Only I can terminate them. This will not stand. If I can't have my two stars back, then no one can have them. Battle cruiser, arm all weapons, open fire. And before she can finish, uh, we see this giant burst of flame rip through it as the Human Torch and Spider-Man show up to save the day. Spidey has webbed up the ship to prevent it from falling to the ground. He says, so we got your call. What did we miss? Thing says, easy, Joe. It's over, all right. Joe says, no, the only way this stops is by sending her a message written with the blood of all her fallen. Thing says, I said enough. Joe looks back to him, kind of holds his uh, hand to his chest and says, very well, Commander. If those are your orders, I will stand down. And the thing starts talking to uh, the profiteer's men, like, look, uh, don't make this personal because I will make it personal. And we go back to Alicia, which has been another thing I haven't really been liking, is that she's kind of repeating the mistakes of her dad. And we actually get the puppet master uh, using one of their neighbors. Uh, oh, what's this man's name? Uh, I forget. <clears throat> uh, I think uh, Hiram. Yes, Hiram. Uh, and talking through Hiram, he talks to her like, look, you know, this is a step too far. Trust me, daughter, it's a choice even I wouldn't make. No mother should try to control her child because she's trying. She's seen the rage inside of Joe and Nikki, and she wants to prevent them from doing this. She wants to be a good parent, which, unfortunately, she's trying to control her children. So with the puppet master's intervention, she actually stops, which is a unique twist. So I'm not big on this little mini arc for her, but I actually like how it was handled. So we move on. Um, she goes back outside. She says, uh, hugging Nikki, says, you're going to be okay, honey? She, Nikki says, yeah, mom. I need to stay with Mr. Sheckerberg here. That's Hiram. I have to talk with your brother. And Spider-Man has talking to two kids. And, and uh, what's this? Uh, uh, looks like a pencil outfit and a pumpkin. And he says, what, what do you mean? Who am I supposed to be? I'm Spider-Man. And one of the kids says, not the real one. He's shorter and has red and white eyes. Which I believe is talking about Miles. <laughs> so poor Peter can never get the respect he deserves, no matter what. And that's just the Parker luck. Uh, but the thing and Alicia are talking to Joe. And the thing says, Joe, what you did here tonight was it was it was and Alicia says, unacceptable. <clears throat> Joe tries to defend himself, says, What? Would you rather I didn't fight for Nikki's freedom for my own? He says, Thing says, we don't kill. You got that? Not ever. I never want to see you killing nobody ever again. Says, I understand, Commander. From now on, I shall only use non-lethal force. He says, but I am your soldier. And Thing says, no, you ain't. Not anymore. Says, oh, you, you and Alicia want to transfer me to another unit? Thing says, no, Joe. Look at me. That's never going to happen. And you can quit it with all of that transfer and unit talk and calling me Commander. You ain't nobody, anyone's soldier anymore. You got that? Being a soldier is all I know. I am Joe of the House of Ben. That is my designation. Well, maybe it's time for a new designation, Ben. You are Joe of the House of of the House of Grimm. And from now on, all you're ever going to be is my son. And Joe hugs both Alicia and Thing and says, "Yes, Commander, Father, 
Yes, Father. So the thing goes to Spider-Man and Human Torch. says, hey, thanks, you two. It's a good thing you both showed up when you did. Johnny says, actually, that was dumb luck. We came here because we need some help fixing something I melted. Says, yeah, and since my webbing only lasts for about an hour, we've got to work fast. Say, Alicia, how good are you at sculpting metal? And at the final panel, we get the Statue of Liberty that started to melt because of the intensity of the Human Torch's flames. And Spider-Man's webbing is the only thing keeping the arm up. <laughs> so I got to say, as much as I rag on Slot, uh, this was exactly what I needed to have faith restored in him again. This is a fun little issue. Like it, it, it backed up on uh, plot points that had already been, you know, there before in the background with the profiteer and the children. Uh, but also with the way human torch has been derailed, it was actually nice for him to talk to his, one of his best friends. Like, look, this is what's going on. Let's have this honest talk with each other. And I also like that there's not a scene like that, where Spider-Man originally starts with like, look, you got to hang in there. You got to focus on what's good for you. But he also stops at a moment and realizes he doesn't have all the answers. And that's a good thing. Tell us uh, Fantastic Four 37. We're going to move on to Amazing Spider-Man 76. It wasn't in uh, last uh, week or this week, I should say. But you know what? I'm in charge, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, ben Riley has become Spider-Man at this point in time. Just to give you a little background. Uh, as well as working with Peter to attack the UFOs, but Peter got an almost lethal dose of radiation. And we're picking up in 76 as Ben is calling Aunt May and telling her, like, look, uh, I'm hurt. They're pretending that he's Peter. And he says he's in the hospital. And Aunt May realizes immediately that that wasn't Peter. Uh, And the doctor's talking to Ben, like, uh, who has claimed that Peter is his brother. And it says, it looks like this, uh, this looks like toxicosis of some kind of radiation poisoning. Maybe both. Uh, Ben says, ionizing radiation. Yeah, that's what my HUD said. And amatoxin, maybe? I don't know. I had to turn it off. I had to turn it off to bring him here. And at this point, we hear a woman screaming, where is he? And looking around, I'm looking for Peter Parker. And we see Mary Jane for the first time. Clearly upset, seeing, uh, hearing about Peter in this condition. Uh, and talking to the doctor, like, wait, I talked to his brother to get here, and the doctor's, and she said, wait, what, what brother? And Ben has left the scene. Uh, there's a line from another doctor saying he's convulsing, and he's running off to go save Peter. It says, none of these vitals make sense. They're trying to save him. And Peter is, spider sense is going haywire from the immense radiation that's going on here. And that's where we leave that scene, moving on to the Beyond Tower. Where Ben is with, uh, what is she going by now? Is she going by Janine or Elizabeth? I can't remember. Uh, he is with uh, Janine Godby, whose real name is Elizabeth Tyne, or maybe that's her first. I'm not caught up to everything that happened in the Clone Saga or beyond when Ben was Spider Man, but he had two main love interests. This was the one who looked more like Mary Jane at the time. I'm glad the artist changed her. Because it was real clear she was a ripoff, you know, uh, from that era of Mary Jane. And the other one was, uh, what was her name? I can't remember, but she was the burglar's daughter. The burglar that shot Uncle Ben. So that had a lot of really fun nuance to the story there. Uh, So she's waiting with, oh gosh, what's this guy's name? 
It's a name I never would have guessed. Marcus Montplacier. Thank you, Pastor Christian, for putting this down. And they're discussing, you know, that <clears throat> uh, Ben is coming back, his uniform's on, they're, they're able to track him through it. That's one of the stipulations for this. It says, uh, as Ben walked through, he says, oh, my parents waited up for me. I knew I should have snuck in through the window. <laughs> and at this point, it's like, uh, his handler's like, look, you took the costume off and didn't say a word to us. And Ben takes off his his hood, not his hood, his mask. It says, I had to take care of something. The other guy had a problem. Hard to go into protecting into while protecting his identity, but it was no big deal. So Ben at this moment is kind of conflicted. He wants to be a good, you know, brother, I guess, to Peter. But at the same time, he's got this whole thing with Beyond Corporation. So he's uh, talking to Janine. Uh, it says, like, look, it's about Peter. He's in real bad shape. And this time, Aunt May has reached there with Mary Jane. And they're, uh, they're both talking about the radiation that he's been dealing with. And he said, Peter says, ladies, ladies, one at a time. I'm not a piece of meat. <laughs> Proving that no matter how, how much he's in dire straits, Peter Parker will never stop snarking. And that's what we love about him. And he explains that he was at uh, Empire State when the UFOs attacked. And he's about to, it almost seems like he's about to confess that he was Spider-Man to Aunt May. But Mary Jane covers for him and says that he was about to meet with uh, Professor Connors. That's uh, uh, Kurt Connors, the lizard, for those who don't know, uh, when he got through all that. And they've been having trouble with the doctors. But Aunt May says, yeah, yeah, not sure what isn't going to cut it. <clears throat> not sure what isn't going to cut it. Where is this Dr. Burdick? I'd like a word. And Major says, look, he'll be back in an hour, but he really doesn't seem like to be the type who likes answering questions. And she kind of gets, gets this really stern look on her face. Says, then he's very much not going to like his life for the foreseeable future. Not until I'm satisfied Peter is getting the treatment he deserves. <laughs> so she goes off to go full Karen in a good way to get Peter the diagnosis he needs. As we flash over to Misty Knight and Colleen Wing who in the last issue were recruited by Ben to work with the Beyond Corporation. <clears throat> and uh, they're discussing like what they can do uh, to find the UFOs. And Ben says, look, give me an hour. And he leaves regardless because uh, uh, the Beyond Corporation wanted him to stay. But he's, you know, he's just moving forward because he, he's got something on his mind. But he's not going after the UFOs first. He's going back to the hospital. And that's when he, uh, Mary Jane confronts him and asks him, you, what did you do to him? And Ben, kind of like feeling incredibly guilty, walks up there and says, look, things got out of hand. I'm so sorry. Is he going to be okay? And she looks him right now and says, maybe you could have stuck around to find out after you dropped him on the curb. Uh, Peter pipes up and says, Ben, if you're going to talk your way out of this, let's get those lips moving. If she starts swinging, I'm in no shape to stop her. Uh, ben looks down and says, oh, okay, right, look. If I could take your place, I would. But I'm still on my feet, and and it's a Spider-Man thing. I still want to do it. I think it's even more important now that you're, you know. But I've decided I can't do it without your blessing. Peter says, you want my permission? I thought you weren't asking. I didn't handle that right. I'm not used to getting things the things I need. I don't expect people to help me, so I don't know how to ask. That's what my therapist says, at least. Anyway, this is me asking. It's hard when you're around, Ben. It really is. It feels like I'm being asked to share my life. And I 
don't know that there's enough of that to go around in the first place. And that makes it real easy to ignore that this is all even harder for you, because you deserve to be who you are. You deserve to do what makes you happy. And you deserve to be Spider-Man. Peter kind of gives him a smile, and Ben smiles back. He says, thank you, Peter. You get better, okay? Peter says, I'll be out of here in no time. Don't get too comfortable on your own. And last thing, Ben, yeah, be amazing. And Ben leaves with a kind of mixed emotions on his face, like being happy and satisfied, but also afraid for what's going to happen to Peter. And Mary Jane kind of looks down at Peter and says, I'd be mad at you right now if you weren't the sweetest man alive. And she says, Peter, he kind of whispers to her and says, just waiting for Ben to get out of your shot. She asks, why? He says, because I can't feel my body. And Mary Jane screams, help! Someone help! He's seizing up! We're losing him! She says, Tiger, hang in there, Tiger. Stay with us, buddy. I can't. And Peter says in narration, I can't. My body's in danger. It's trying to shut down. And we see in this panel, Mary Jane, as she's crying out Peter's name, has a ring on her ring finger, which... Did Peter propose off-screen? Potentially, as Peter starts going off into a coma. Uh, and Ben, as we see, is staking out, like, with his detective vision on. He's going for Arkham Asylum, uh, finding the UFOs as he attacks them, using various gadgets to take them down. And it's like... <clears throat> it, as he's attacking them one by one, He's got these gauntlets on his wrist that almost look like they spew, could spew out bullets, but they're actually spewing out these uh, little tiny uh, spherical balls that are disrupting the UFO's ability to use their powers. And the UFO says, Spider-Man? He says, hell yes, Spider-Man. To be continued. Wow. So... I'm a little hesitant about this run. It's only going to last like 19 issues, I think. And they're doing one uh, about three a month for the foreseeable future. But if this is how they're doing it, I'm fine. Um, it's interesting. Uh, gosh, there's that word again. I was so, I was doing so well. And I screw it up at the end. Classic Christian. It's almost two o'clock. Of course I am. <laughs> It's interesting. It's interesting. Now, this is... Uh, I also used too, fun too many times. Now I'm second-guessing every word I've said. I am enjoying this. Let's go with that. Uh, like I said, in episode zero, I've never really had a problem with Ben. Uh, I think it's... He's fitting to the era. I mean, you have to acknowledge the clone saga was a thing. I'm glad that he works well with, with Peter. I'm glad that he asked his permission this time around, like learning from the first time and the first issue of this. Uh, he just kind of said, I'm doing this. But he goes, no, that's not fair. I need to go to him, even though he's in this life-threatening situation. And I think Peter, at this moment, is like more thinking about Ben than himself by realizing, you know, I think he needs this more than me telling him no. So I'm going to tell him to do this for his sake, even though I'm dying right now. So let's talk about that ring. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, many years ago, uh, I forgot to mention this in episode zero, but uh, when I'm on the internet, um, I mostly go by the name NKSCF. And some of you may recognize that. Uh, I wrote the fanfic Breaking the Deal. And 
that was my fix fic for Spider-Man and Mary Jane selling their marriage to the Marvel analog to Satan Mephisto. And it got a lot of positive reviews. A lot of people still like it to its day. I actually just looked the other month and like that getting hundreds of views all those times. Like, wow, that's pretty good for something I wrote in 2010 ish, 29, 2009, 2009, as other people would say. But the reason I wrote it was because I hated that idea so much of Marvel getting rid of the marriage because they wanted the younger, hipper Peter Parker as Spider-Man who wasn't tied down to a woman. God forbid that ever happened. I can't handle my superheroes being married. It's just awful. And the way they did it was even more disrespectful because it gets rid of the core concept of, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Well, Peter made the decision to take off his mask during Civil War, which led to the sniper employed by the Kingpin to shoot Aunt May, which led to her dying. But then Peter... Oh, gosh. I just remembered Omit. It's so dumb. This one moment in time for anyone who's gone through that. He saves her through the magic of CPR. You know, even though he went to Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange and the High Evolutionary and all these other people to ask them for help, and none of them could solve a simple bullet wound for an old lady. Oh, it's so dumb. I hate that. I hate that storyline so much. But if this is what's happening, Marvel will have regained a lot of trust from me. Because it shows they're willing to admit they were wrong about getting rid of the marriage in the first place. So maybe I'm reading too much into it because Peter was planning to propose to her in Nick Spencer's run. Uh, I think it was like 27 or something like that. 29 issue. So yeah, I think that's the end of our podcast tonight. And as I'm looking through this, you know, as long as we've been on, you know, I'm beginning to think more and more, I may have to split this up. I think it'll be better for me and I think it'll be better for everyone else. But yeah, this is fun. Uh, like I said, I'm second guessing myself everything I'm doing, but at the same time, this like I'm enjoying this so much. Well, until next time. See ya.